the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, sentient butterflies flock back in time to witness celebrity ground zero butterfly effect creator. His name is Willy Nilly that set them on the road to replacing the vertebrates as top dog on the planet. A lackey and Ed Chill followed by a boop. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. We talk with Eric Flint and Ivor P. Cooper this time about their new Ring of Fire novel, 1636, The China Venture. This is an extremely well-researched, super-exciting novel set in the Ring of Fire universe, featuring a group of uptimers and German-area Magdeburg downtimers on a diplomatic trading ship going to China in 1636. Eric and Ivor talk about some of the very cool details of their novel, where China must come in contact with 20th century tech and a modern worldview many centuries early. It's cool stuff, and there's even a compelling love story in the book as well. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The October new hardcovers and trade paperbacks are so good it's scary, and they are at booksellers everywhere. Out in October is The Waters in the Wild by Mercedes Lackey and Rosemary Edgehill. A deep dive into the unknown. Deeply depressed Olivia, whose parents are divorcing, is ripe for manipulation. And swimming star Blake is looking for someone just like her. Although her friends try to warn her, Olivia falls for his ploys and accepts an invitation to the Adirondack Resort Camp of Lake Indoor with him and his family. But all is not as it seems at the hundred-year-old resort. Not only does Olivia discover that Blake is not the guy she thought he was, there's something sinister afoot at the lake. There's something lying beneath the waters of Lake Endor, something not of this world. Also at Booksellers in October is Antediluvian by Will McCarthy. Into the Past It turns out that our legends of the Stone Age are even older than we think. It was a time when a world of archetypes and myths was written upon the fabric of humanity itself in the deepest way. In a brilliant and dangerous brain-hacking experiment, two scientists are about to discover entire lifetimes of human memory encoded in our genes and reveal ancient legends from knights and trolls to flood myths to the birth of humanity itself that are very real and very deadly. Finally, new for October is Straight Out of Deadwood, edited by David Boop. The weird and wild frontier rides again. First they were straight out of Tombstone, now we venture to an even wilder frontier town, Deadwood, and its creepy environs. And to do so, here's an all-new posse of top authors to explore it with. Charlene Harris gives us a glimpse inside her new series as a tormented gunfighter faces a true demon of her past. Mike Resnick reveals what Doc Holliday thought was so funny on his last day, and Shane Hensley cooks up a stew that threatens to send every famous lawman in history to their graves. 
The West that once was rides again, but this time with the West that could have been chasing after like a spitting hell cat on its tail. Straight out of Deadwood, edited by David Boop, Antediluvian by Will McCarthy, and The Waters in the Wild by Mercedes Lackey and Rosemary Edgehill are all available at booksellers everywhere. Get some, give them as treats, don't get tricked into missing these, and happy pumpkin month to all. want to welcome Eric Flint and Ivor P. Cooper to the podcast. Hello, guys. Hi. Hello. Eric Flint is the author and creator of the multiple New York Times bestselling Ring of Fire series, starting with 1632 and, and spreading out to, uh, like the stars, <laughs> many, many. Um, with David Drake, he wrote six popular novels in the Belisarius alternate Roman history series. With David Weber, he collaborated on... Uh, some Ring of Fire books, 1632, 1634, The Baltic War, and he has written three novels in, in David Weber's first series of, as well, The Crown of Slave books. Eric was, for many years, a labor union activist, and he lives near Chicago. Ivor P. Cooper has been an active contributor to Eric Flint's Ring of Fire universe with short stories and articles published in the Grantville Gazette, um, which is that online magazine, and sometimes we do it as a book. And in the hardcover anthology, Ring of Fire 2, he is the author of 1636 Seas of Fortune. Ivor is an intellectual property law attorney in uh, in real life, as it were. <laughs> and it's the author of Biotechnology and the Law, now in its 20-something edition. In his spare time, he teaches swing and folk dancing and participates in local photo club competitions. He's married with a son and a daughter. So, and out now at booksellers everywhere is um, a great new collaboration, uh, and it's a China book in the 1632 uh, Ring of Fire series. It's called 1636 The China Venture. Um, so, maybe, Eric, you could just start us off by telling us where we are in the timeline of this series. Um, 1632 is when Grantville shows up um, in the middle of Germany. Um, and, and various things happen, and now we're we're five years later, right? Uh, six actually. They, they they show up in 1631. Actually, I, they, 1632 is when the book ends, um, and that's kind of the pattern we've used for all the titles. The date that we show in the title is the date when it ends, not necessarily a date when it starts. Uh, we are now. Entering 1637, um, there's been so far two novels published that go into 1637. Uh, the book that Ivor wrote, Ivor and I wrote, uh, China Venture, ends a little before then. Um, um, sort of roughly the middle of 1636. So we are about six six years after the beginning of the whole saga, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And they have um they've decided Mike's Mike Stern's the president at the moment or of of uh the United States of Europe, which had what has become the USC. Um it, they're starting to try to recoup some of the technology of the twentieth century. Um and very, very, I guess it's 2000, so it would be just the end of the 20th century that Grantville got displaced in time from West Virginia. It was, uh, April, uh, I can never remember if it was April or May, 
I ever probably remember, April. but it was huh? April. Yeah, it was April 2000 yeah. that they underwent the time transfer, and they arrived in uh, the seven, Germany in the 17th century in May of uh, 1631. So by this time, he's he's got a a, um, a really cool priest who has become now his uh, sort of head of. Um, of security and, and national security advisor in a way, um, and, who is, um, I think he's a priest, isn't Nazi? Um, yeah, former. no, he's, he's not a priest. He's um, he's Jewish. He's part of the, uh, oh, yeah, the Sephardic okay. Jew, and he's part of the very, very wealthy, power, influential, and very extended Abravanel family. He's more like a clan, really. Um, and... Um, that's where he comes from. He actually was born and raised in the Ottoman Empire in what's today Turkey. Um, so he has a lot of experience with that. He emigrated. He moved to. Uh, he first appeared right the very first novel, uh, 1632, and he arrives in Granville. God, I'm blanking on the exact time. I think it's late 1631 is when he gets there, and then he winds up staying. But he he's. Somebody's lobbying him, and then he lobbies Mike uh, Stearns to send a, uh, a a trade delegation and a diplomatic delegation to China at this point in 1636. Uh, the, uh, most of the novels in the series cover relatively short time span. The 1632, the first book, covered 18 months. And most of them are less than that, six to months to a year. This book, though... Uh, Ivor and I went back a ways, so um, because we need it, it takes quite a while to get one of these expeditions over to China in the condition of the 17th century. So we had to go back and have the thing set underway in 1634 when Mike Stearns was still the uh, Prime Minister of the United States of Europe. He's not as of six; he, he loses the election. In 1635. So by the time the book, they get to China, the book happens. Mike Stearns is no longer the, um, the prime minister, but it doesn't really matter because there's a huge time delay in, in that period. Uh, it takes anywhere from six months to a year to get from Europe to China. And then um, in some cases, there's radio contact, but they don't have any in this. So they don't really have any ongoing contact with where they went set off from. Um, so the the scenes with with Mike Stearns and Francisco Nassi are in the beginning of the book, but then after that they pretty well fade away. Yeah. But why why do they want to send this um this uh, delegation and what what do they hope to accomplish? What's the purpose of it? And um what are the parameters of it? You know, what are the, what are the sort of people they want? Um, I'm going to let Ivor well, Yeah, there are several things going on there. Uh, bear in mind that what they are looking at for China is long-term. It's not an immediate effect uh, the way what's happening, say, in Spain or even um, Gulf Coast of the U.S. is. So they want to know what's going on in particular, have any changes become evident that are 
perhaps indirectly the result of the Ring of Fire. They uh, also recognize that there are some natural resources that China has in great abundance that are either only available in limited quantities in Europe or they're available only in a country that is not uh, friendly to the United States of Europe, which is the entity that Granville has effectively been folded into. Um, and there's some um, uh, social concerns as well, but that's pretty much uh, the motivation. And so you have both a trade delegate, trade mission, which is mostly interested in just that, and a small piggyback diplomatic mission, uh, which has several young uptimers, young adventurous, dispensable, uh, and um, a senior person leading the delegation who is uh, to give it uh, gravitas. They need, first of all, um, they're going to China, so they need somebody that can, they need the, the delegation to speak Chinese as much as possible, right? So how, how does Grantville happen to have Chinese um, speakers? Well, you know that Grantville is based on Mannington, West Virginia. And in the days before I became involved in the series, a something called the Uptimers Grid was created, which has created characters for every one of the um, um, every Uptimer is listed in there with birth aid, education, things like that. And the demographics of Mannington, of Grantville, were chosen to match that of uh, Mannington. Uh, I don't know about the entire area, but in the 2000 census for Mannington, there were three people of Asian background uh, living in, um, in Mannington. So we have a small extended Chinese family that was created in the grid, uh, what, two, I don't know when the grid was created, Eric, 2007, 2008? Uh, it goes back a long ways. Uh, uh, we so created it. Does... Huh? Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Well, we created it. The first three books that came out in the series were 1632, which I wrote. That's launched it. 1633, which I co-authored with David Weber. And the first big anthology was called Ring of Fire. And the experience I had editing Ring of Fire, the way we did it was we opened up uh, half of the anthology was stories commissioned from established authors, but the other half we opened up to fans to submit stories. And I got a lot of submissions sent in to me, over 100. And one of the things I discovered, and then people kept writing after we published the anthology, and the same problem continued, was that 
my reasonably realistic small coal mining town turned out to have, you know, about 100 retired Navy SEALs and amazing number of rocket scientists. And, you know, it just got ridiculous. And what happened was I was complaining to Virginia to Mars about it. Virginia is, is uh, uh, very, very much interested in genealogy. And she told me she had a program that she could use to generate a whole town for me. So I said, go ahead and do it. So she did. She What she did was she fed in the raw data from Marion County, West Virginia, which is the county that Mannington is in and that Grantville is in, um, on in the year 2000. And the program just produced uh, a town of about 3,500 people, is roughly size. Now, there's a bit of a... The thing about Mannequin, it's not far from Morgantown, West Virginia, and Morgantown is where West Virginia University is located. Now, that's a big university, about 30,000 students. And the way the first novel starts off is with a wedding of the hero, Mike Stern's sister, who was a student at West Virginia University, and a bunch of other students came to the wedding. And they were there. They didn't live in in Grandville, but they were there for the wedding, which is when, you know, the Ring of Fire event happened, and they got swept up in the in the time transfer. So that enabled us to bring in a range of people that weren't necessarily, you know, directly from from that area. Um, and I believe that's where some of the Chinese characters came from, if I remember right. Uh, but anyway, that's how the grid got generated. And it went back a long ways. This would have been 2002, 2003, sometime around then when, when we created it. And since we created it, it's been an ironclad rule that anybody who wants to write in a series and wants to use an uptime character, let us say an American character, you have to have pick someone out of the grid. You can't invent your own character. And I follow that rule. Everybody does. So... Um, and the reason we did it was to keep the series reasonably realistic and not have people constantly finding, you know, characters that may have fit their story nicely but just simply weren't realistic. So the four uptimers we have came straight off the grid. Uh, clearly we were looking for ones whose background would be relevant for China mission but that's the same thing Mike Stearns and Don Francisco Nazi would have done. They would have been looking for people whose backgrounds were suitable for the mission. Uh, so there's one person who was born in Taiwan and is a member of this little single Chinese family living in Grantville. Uh, there's a, um, uh, uh, a second one who has studied... Chinese language, who is one of the student friends of the bride or the groom that had come in for the wedding, and the other two were husband and wife, and well, the husband was the son of the school principal and was majoring in physics at WVU, and uh, the wife's background was more business or something of that sort. Um, so those were that, but it was not that we said, 
oh, we're going to write a China novel. We're going to quickly create some characters who are experts in Chinese, et cetera, et cetera. No, we worked with what had been on the grid, which in turn had been based on the demographics of Mannington with a little bit of a, a nudge uh, of modification because of the wedding party. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool because uh, a good part of the first, uh, you know, the, the first part of the book is about them getting ready and learning Chinese. And we get a lot of really cool exposition that we can learn uh, while these guys are learning it and, and at the same time experience their story of, you know, being frustrated and, and such. So it's not just a expository lump. It's, it's fun. Um, it, I learned a heck of a lot about China just from, from that. Um, but tell us about the characters in, in specifically. Like, who is Eric Garlow? Um, who is Mike and the Gosses? Right. Well, Mike Song is, was born in Taiwan. His family, um, and he was a student at Carnegie Mellon University, which by strange coincidence happens to be the school my son went to. Uh, that was not planned at all uh, that we would work it that way, but it meant I knew about his school, certainly. Um, and his major really had no relevance to the novel. He was a major in, I think, computer science or something similar. So he was coming because he is, is Chinese and speaks the language. Although I should say that the way they uh, that um, there is uh, on Taiwan, besides speaking Mandarin Chinese, there are also people that speak the uh, the dialect that came over when uh, as a result of the first wave of immigration of Chinese from the province of uh, Fujian and further south. So uh, that's Mike. So he's literally the Chinese expert. Of course, the only one of them that can pass as Chinese. Uh, Eric Garlo was majoring in um, something like Asian languages and literature, according to the grid. So that's why he's there. Um, and he is coming in... Um, even according to the grid, the grid wasn't just a static thing. It actually would do marriages, deaths, things like that progressively. And he married another of the people that were in the wedding party, and I had them essentially break up, and that meant he was, shall we say, more susceptible for getting out of Grantville. Um the, then the other two um, um, were Jim Saluzzo and his uh, fiancé. Jim Saluzzo was picked because he was both a physics major who knew some astronomy and could learn more and because he was Catholic. And it was known that... Um, the main Western inroad in China at this point 
was that there were some Jesuits that were advising the Chinese imperial court about astronomical matters, and it was felt that they needed to make contact with the court, get into uh, higher-level discussions, and someone who was Catholic would be someone they perhaps might be a little more reluctant to challenge than if they just brought in some Protestant astronomer with them. Yeah, and Eric is sort of the instigator because he's also part of the USC military intelligence um, unit, right? He's um... Yes, he was. So he had been doing research for NASI and helped develop the proposal, so to speak. Yeah, and so they all go over to... Uh, everybody's going to go on this trip, and 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 they're gonna take trade goods. And uh, there's a huge, there's a lot of um, it, it's the diplomatic side of it is not is more of a, a secret than the fact that it's that's also trade related. Um, and Mike's uh, relatives who live there um, teach a bunch of them at least rudimentary Chinese. How do they know? How to, I mean, what is the Mandarin Chinese of the 1600s in, say, Beijing or um, or the coastal town they go to first? Um, and how do they modify what the you know these 20th century characters know to to try to be able to talk to these people they're going to go meet? Well, we, obviously they had an effort on learning Chinese, but we don't want to really belabor the point. Uh, the because learning a language there certainly there are going to be mistakes made in of understanding of translation and the like and some those are really going to be signaled out only because when they're dramatically important. Well, I mean, you, you go into it a little bit in. The- in the book, how they do this, especially with learning some of the characters and such. Right. You have to understand that with the exception of Eric Garlow and Mike Song, the others are still going to have only a relatively rudimentary knowledge of Chinese, unless they are extremely, extremely good at languages. It's really cool, though. That you learn a lot about Chinese just by um, by, by following along their <laughs> and Mike's attempt to teach them <laughs> as well. Um, it, all about the main Chinese characters? Okay, well... The three most important are all very interesting. We didn't invent them. Uh, One of them is Zhen Zhilong. Zhen Zhilong had been a member of a merchant family, became a pirate, became a pirate captain, became a pirate chieftain of a pirate fleet, uh, and eventually uh, got bought off by the Ming government and given an admiralty and allowed to and used to suppress his former pirate rivals. And in addition, he 
Well, essentially, if you wanted to, if, if you had a ship leaving the province of Fujian, you better have a license from the Zheng family or <laughs> bad things were likely to happen to you. And that's true even after he became an admiral. So his family became extremely, extremely wealthy. Uh, so we're talking about someone who has that piratical background, who's very able. He actually defeated the Dutch in a naval battle in October 1633. The Dutch had been um, engaging in sporting some rival pirates in the hopes that they could then say, oh, we'll deal with your pirate problem, just let us establish a trading mission. And Zheng Zhilong uh, uh, gave them uh, a nasty defeat, and they sort of retreated from that particular avenue. Let's get them there. So they, so this, this, they sail, um, and and they, they're heading toward. They they go to what you call it, Batavia, right? Which is Borneo. Um, it's well, Batavia you know, is what today is Jakarta. Um, you know, today it's the capital of Indonesia, but uh, okay, it's, it's Indonesia. That was the name that the Europeans gave it at the time. And then they head out through the South China Sea, and they end up in. Um, it's across the China Strait from Taiwan, where um, where they meet this uh, general pirate fellow that you just described, who um, um, Jin Zilong, right? That's his name. Fukien's kind of an unusual province because it's sort of surrounded by mountains. So it's kind of on the coast, but it's sort of sheltered somewhat from the rest of China. The thing you ought to understand when the terminology that Chinese use is not really what Westerners think of. When they talked about bandits, they're really talking about big armies. And they, when you refer to this guy as a pirate chief, what he really was was a was a, a, a seagoing warlord is really what he was. And uh, what the Ming Dynasty eventually did, which is make him an admiral, uh, just the simplest way to solve the problem. He's a real figure in history, and his, he, both he and his son, are, were quite famous in uh, in Chinese history. Um, and so, you know, you hear terms like pirate and bandits, but they they really uh, the, the, some of these. I mean, they're not like Car- Caribbean pirates, you know, that we think of. These are much more powerful fleets, and the same is true with the so-called bandits. They were basically rebellious warlords, many of them, um, and they would get a lot of poor people would rally to their cause, but um, they weren't small. You know, we're not talking Jesse James. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, you're talking real armies. Well, we get a we get a sea battle right before they show up, um, which is a really cool. Uh, description of the of battle at the time and and they try the first contact with him uh, they try to sell him uh this this cannon mount called carronade is that right yeah um it's very historically it was very tough to find goods western goods that the chinese were interested in they mostly wanted silver Eventually, historically, the British 
found that opium worked, and that, of course, led ultimately to the opium wars as the Chinese tried to crack down on that practice and the British tried to maintain it. Uh, so when they are taking these trade goods, they, they've taken a whole bunch of different things, and armaments is certainly one of them, and of course, Ben Geelong is quite interested in those. Um, and other things as well. But you were yeah. going to ask? And, and they, um, well, he's sort of their entree onto the, onto the continent um, after they've, they've uh, made some deals with him. And where they end up is in, uh, is in that town in Fujian, which is, I can't remember the name. <laughs> is it? Uh, yeah, Hangzhou. Um, and Nanjing is where they're they're trying to get to during the book, and and they have to, and so they set up a a sort of world's fair exposition in a way to try to show off their goods, right? Can can you explain how that worked and what they were trying to do? Well, I think you have the general idea. I wouldn't call it world's fair was not on that scale, but they're trying to do things to get. The um, the the upper class in China, the scholar class, who were also the government official class, interested in them and willing to support them being allowed to proceed to the imperial court in Beijing. So it has to be done. Instead, you might contrast how this novel unfolds to, say, uh, Mission to the Mughals, you know, where we were, the USC was going to get certain specific things like opium from India for medical use. Um, there were already many European trading posts on the coast of India, Europeans could come to the Mughal court and get an audience and so on. So it was a much um, easier entry, which doesn't mean there weren't dramatic problems, which of course are developed in the novel, but you could get to the court and make your case. Whereas here the Chinese, although they had let the Portuguese into uh, Macau, in the 1500s were very reluctant to letting any new group trade with them. They uh, rebuffed several uh, embassies from the Dutch in that regard. And even if you were allowed in, it was essentially considered a tribute mission. They weren't expecting that you really had anything to offer them you were being allowed to acknowledge, kowtow to the imperial might and do a little trading while you were in town, and then back you go. So they really had to build up some support. So they were doing, making use of a hot air balloon, and they were also establishing a, um, a little... Um, uh, like exploratorium, uh, 
that uh, where visitors could come in and see the wonders of Western science and maybe say, gee, these people are on our intellectual level. We really need to talk more to them. They are not the ordinary barbarians. <laughs> yeah. And th what's really cool throughout the novel is the way that a lot of the stuff the Chinese already know about, they just haven't used it necessarily the way the West did or technologically, like glass, for instance. It's like they don't really care if they have glass in their windows, which is a surprise for Mike, for instance. Yeah, actually, mostly uh, the Chinese did not have a well-developed glass industry. They did have glass beads and the like, uh, but of course they had an extremely well-developed ceramic industry. So except for, you know, windows, as you mentioned, they apparently didn't see much need. Yeah, and they had lots of gunpowder for fireworks and such. <laughs> yeah, they didn't. Uh, it's funny because the Chinese invented gunpowder and invented firearms, but they didn't really... Um, they didn't really incorporate it that much into their own military um, activity. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of other cultures who got it from the Chinese, like, you know, a number of different cultures, Central Asia and uh, and India and the Turks, you know, they all got, they didn't get their cannons from Europeans. They got them originally from the Chinese, and, and they did a lot with them. But the Chinese didn't. It, it's... One of the things we tried to do in the novel is give people a, a real, you know, without making it a history book, but give people a, a feel for what Chinese culture was like and what what that society is like. That's why one of the main characters is a young um, scholar. He's a young student trying to pass the imperial exams, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, to become a Mandarin, so that you get a look at it from the inside, not just from the outside. That's a really cool section. Um, tell us about Fang Yizi. So he was born in 1611, so he's in his early 20s when we encounter him. At this point, he is simply a student there's, uh, who is trying to pass the provincial level exam, and if you pass that, then you go on to take the national exam, and if you pass that, then you become eligible for an appointment as an official. Um, and uh, the historical Yeji later in life was known for his interest in Western science, which is one of the reasons I zeroed in on him as a character. And his cut, and so he's open-minded, and he, in turn, uh, on, in a different way than Zhen Zhilong, is one of the um, um, people that helps mediate their entry into Chinese society at a level at which they can hope to progress on their mission. What is, um, so he's, he's really smart. And uh, he's also, um, he's connected to this family, the, the Fongs. Um, who are they, and um, why is it good that, that we get to know them? 
I mean, the the delegation gets to know them. Uh, the 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 Fang family, the Fang family. I don't want to spill too much. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. His um, father, Kung Zhao, had been a uh, district magistrate, so he was um, um, a, uh, an individual of at least local provincial importance, and uh, the mission at one point uh, is invited to go and visit him, and some um, unexpected problems ensue. But they're they're upper class, right? They're so bear in mind that in China, the upper class is are not noblemen really, but scholar officials, people who who uh, who or a member of their family has gone through the grueling study of the Chinese classics and taken these examinations and gotten appointments uh, of an official nature of one type or another. Uh, the actual noblemen are who are the the relatives of the emperor are actually very restricted in their movements and their general contact with society. In other words, the emperor doesn't really brook any rivals, and it's beyond, besides the emperor, it's these scholar officials that are running the country, and uh, probably more involved in running the country than the emperor himself is, to be honest. Yeah, well, there's a there is a kind of built-in class structure because in order to, as we you know you get you get a sense of it from what we'd have in the novel to be able to do the kind of studies you need to pass these incredibly rigorous exams, you have to have a lot of spare time. So I mean, you know, if you're a, a just you know working stiff, there's no way you're going to be able to devote the kind of time to study. So. They have to come from fairly prosperous families, um, or else it's just simply not realistic. So there's a kind of, it's not a nobility, or if it is, it's more like the French nobility of the robe, as they called it. It's it's not based on what in Western tradition we think of as more traditional aristocracy, which usually has, or if you go back far enough military origin, the Chinese this is an area, a country that had been an empire for 2,000 years. I mean, yeah, going back uh, two, three centuries before Christ. And there were a couple of periods in Chinese history when it broke up in the Warring Kingdoms. But for the most part, China was a unified realm for most of its history. And that really shaped the whole way that culture developed. I mean, it's an enormous culture. You know, it's it's... Well, today it's the most populous uh, uh, country on the world, and that's been true for centuries. And so it's got a different, it's, it's really quite different from Europe, and we're trying to give our readers, you know, a sense of that. I mean, you know, you can only go so far because it's, you know, you're writing a novel and you want people to be interested in following a story. But we did try to, you know, give people a sense of just 
how different in many ways the Chinese history and Chinese culture was and what people are used to from Europe. Um, it's also, from the point of view writing a novel, we, we just is blind luck, but it just happens to be the case that the 16, this period in Chinese history is very tumultuous because we're, we're almost in, on the eve of the collapse of the Ming Dynasty. And which had ruled for several centuries, and they would be replaced by the the Manchu dynasty, which became known as the Qing dynasty. Um, and this is all, so so to speak, scheduled to happen in a few years before the novel. So our, our heroes, our protagonists, are going into a situation that is really um, very unstable, which is, is not good if you're living it, but it's great from a... <laughs> If you're writing fiction about it. <laughs> in, in the overall scheme of things, the trouble was that the Ming Dynasty was simultaneously facing both internal and external threats. Internally, you had the this cycle of the, the famine, floods, etc., uh, which would mean peasants starving, which would mean peasants joining these banded armies, uh, and those armies would grow, so that would be the internal threat. And as Eric said, they are armies. They could number several hundred thousand individuals in some cases. And on the other hand, you had raids by both the Mongols and Jurchen uh, across the borders, the Jurchen were the were what became the Manchu in 1635 or 1636, and so the Ming Dynasty can never quite deal with one threat before it has to move to the next one, and things got worse and worse. Uh, the weather got worse in particular, the climate changed for the worse, which increased the internal threat. And then in um, 1644, it you uh, the 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 banded army actually took Beijing, uh, and the general at the border decided that the Manchu, the king, were the lesser evil. And they crossed the border and joined with his army to defeat the bandit army. And then after that, the king proceeded to spend the next few decades pacifying the country and uh, unifying it under their control. Yeah, but th and this bandit or, or just rebellion um, and sort of civil war is. It's about to happen again in the timeline of Grantville, um, at least in the history books that they brought back with them. And they are debating whether they want to tell the pe anybody about this, right? Because they, in a sense, know the future, possibly at least. It, it, in many parts of the world, when after the Ring of Fire happens, very quickly the downtimers get wind of the fact that... that uh, this town of Granville has history books of the future, so there's a huge market in these 
you know, what you might call future history books. But China is so far away that they really don't grasp that, and, and except the the Jesuits do, and uh, so there's a, a layer of Jesuits who have a very uh, ambivalent attitude toward the uh, the uptimers, and they do often know a lot of stuff about what's supposed to happen. But the Chinese themselves don't generally, uh, unless they get told by this expedition of, of people from Granville that's in the novel, because they're just so far away, and uh, both geographically and also culturally. So um, they're they're more oblivious to what's happening than people in Europe are, for certain. Um, and in addition, there's more difficulty in persuading them as well. It's, if you're a European, you could visit Granville and you could see the actual physical ring of fire, how the terrain changes in a very dramatic way as you go from outside to inside the ring, and that it's a perfect circle. And rather convinced, Chinese aren't exposed to any of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's just rumors they hear, but, you know, the rumors are from a barbarian land far, far away. None of them has ever been to it. So, I mean, and that's part of the um, it convince them that their real thing to do with the um, the ex- exposition they put on and such. But, um, hey, I want to, before we, I definitely want to talk about um, Into Mike Song's Life walks um, Lou Rushi. Um, who is she? And uh, she is, it's a wonderful love story that um, develops throughout the uh, a portion of the book that uh, was pretty unexpected to me. I really liked it. It was my favorite part of the book. It, it, it's a tricky thing to pull off because she's basically what in in, in, in Western culture would be considered a prostitute, but it, it's a more... Well, I'd say courtesy. Courtesan would probably be a better term for it, but uh, but that's the background she comes from, and and it's a you know she has her feet have been bound, so she's got tiny little feet. I mean, she really comes from that whole background, and and Mike Song, his ancestry Chinese, but he himself comes from a Western culture, and 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 the the kind of interaction between the two of them, it was it was a lot of uh, fun to write that. Um, and, and develop it. I mean, uh, I remember Ivor and I talking about it right from the very beginning. We were planning out the novel. We, he, he suggested it, and I liked the idea a lot of having, uh, you know, of bringing that in. I mean, remind me, Ivor, I think she's a real historical figure. Am I right? Or did yes, you pat her? We... very figure. Uh, she was famous as a poet, a calligrapher, a painter, a lot of her work has survived, actually. Um, so she was first the concubine of effectively the prime minister, so to speak. And after he died, she was sort of chased out of the household. Um, he had some relationships, you know, um, and um, historically she actually was married in 1640 by one of the uh, scholars, but got rather upset with him after 1644 when he was not as vigorous in his opposition to the 
Manchu takeover as she was. Um, and she lived to uh, the 1660s. Okay, yeah, right. So anyway, she, yeah, the character is based on a real historical figure. It was quite fascinating. And she would, she would dress in men's robes and uh, attend scholarly functions and discourse on uh, literature and other topics. Even military strategy was something she was interested in. I mean, Very she's really smart, and she knows Chinese history and literature really well, is, which is, I guess, that sort of courtesan would, would do, right? I mean, this is historical. And it seems like uh, it, she, she walks into uh, Mike's uh, pavilion. He thinks she's a man. Um, just to talk a little bit about the development of that relationship, because I, you know, just... Um, because in a way, she has 20th century attitudes toward the whole um, getting together stuff that is more in comporting with, with, with the Grantville people than than a lot of the people we've met in the past up till now, the other downtimers. It's a little bit complicated. The late Ming was a period in, live, in which at least... Some of the scholarly class thought that marriages shouldn't be just arranged marriages for property, but true companionate marriages, the term the, that writers nowadays use for it. She, of course, um, was free. She had reached a status in the ranks of courtesans where she could, to some degree, pick and choose her clients. But, of course, she's still under the constraints of a social nature of being courtesan as well. It really was, you know, a challenging um relationship to address, but we thought she was such an interesting character that it was worth doing. Eric, did you have anything you'd want to add on that? No, it's just um, the other thing about her is that because she's kind of got a position in society which is sort of not quite respectable, I mean, it's... I don't know how to put it. It actually makes her more of a free thinker than um, Mm -hmm. most Chinese would be, just because, I don't know how to put it. She's not an outlaw, but, I mean, you know, she's got some of, she's on the edge of society, so to speak. And so part of what happens when she meets Mai Tsung is she gets attracted to the fact that he does have a different attitude to all kind of things. Um so it, it was a complicated relationship for us to work out in terms of how it worked, how it would eventually. And you know, the book ends with a certain resolution between them. I mean, it's obviously going to keep going, but um, that was one of the parts of the book that that um, I know I found really interesting. Um, yeah, it's really cool. We don't want to give too much away, but they they do. Uh, it, 
those are uh, really, and they're well-rounded characters. It's really a, a good subplot. Um, so finally, maybe talk a little bit about the, uh, the, what are some of the technological and warfare aspects that we encounter here? Um, we talked about some of them. Uh, and there's balloons aplenty in this, <laughs> this book, so, and other things as well. What, what sort of gets highlighted um, in uh, 1636, the China Venture, story-wise? The use of, of hot-air balloons, and, and there really are balloons. They're not dirigibles in this. Uh, uh, we do have airships in other novels in the series, but they don't bring something that, that you know, it, what they're bringing is simpler. But just having that kind of visual, um, you know, ability to see much farther just has, has an impact. And... Um, Part of what they're bringing in is a different way of using firearms. Um, it's not that the Chinese weren't familiar with them, but uh, they, they never really developed them very much. So, but so now they're running into uh, uh, it's a sort of combination European technology as influenced 17th century European military technology as influenced by 20th century American. So. It's more advanced, and and you know there's an adjustment process. The book ends with a uh, with a big siege of this town um, where there's being attacked by a bandit army, and so you know some of that's brought in there. Um, um, but you know I, it, the 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 novel ends with with the, the, I don't want to give away too much, but you know. Um, there's no way you can write a novel like this as part of a big series, especially when you're going into a society as big and sprawling as China on the eve of the collapse of the Ming Dynasty and wrap it all up in one book. I mean, there's just no way you're going to do it. And we didn't try to. We just, just had some personal and political resolutions by the end, and we thought, you know, concluded this novel well enough. Obviously, the story would have to continue. Um, but what they have succeeded in doing by the end of the book is persuading at least some Chinese, important Chinese figures that they, that this is something they want to pursue further. Tell us about the uh, the process of, of y'all working together on this. We've done another book by Ivor, but that was a solo novel, um, The uh, Seas of Fortune, right? Um, what, uh, how'd you put this one together? Well, Ivor and I worked... Started in Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, I think we first talked about it at Dragon Con in 2011. So yeah, around there, yeah. It's mm -hmm. been in for quite a while. Yeah, it was a long time ahead. in the making because um, uh, Ivor had done quite a bit of research on Japan. He's, he's written... Um, quite a number of stories um, that focus more on Japan for the series. Uh, uh, the Seas of Fortune is a book that Bain published, but we've also published uh, through Ring of Fire Press a short novel of his called The Phantom, the Cross, and the Dragon. But he also got interested in China. But, there, you know, there's a ton of research you have to do. So, um, and, and Ivor did most of it. I, I know a fair amount of Chinese history 
from way back when, because when I was in college, I studied it. But but you know, Ivor did the first draft, and and be quite honest, he did the overwhelming bulk of the research for this particular book. And Ivor then wrote the first draft, and then well, we worked through the story first, and we talk about it as he went along. Then he wrote the first draft, and then. Um, we sent it in. Tony Weisskopf, the publisher, read over it. She had some changes she wanted, and I did the second draft and incorporated those changes, and and that's the book that finally came out of it. But it was it was quite a while in the in the in the process. I mean, this is not the kind of book you can just bat out. Um, not with the amount of research that had to be done to make it uh, work the way it did. Yeah. And like I said, I did the overwhelming majority of that. It's really rich in in detail and and you know verisimilitude and all that that sort of cool stuff you want in a historical. We might mention that. Well, you already mentioned Chrysanthemum Cross and the Dragon. Uh, that actually is occurring at that Ring of Fire Press, and it's occurring at the same time, and <laughs> it briefly touches with China Venture uh, in a couple of places, though. Well, it's a big, sweeping, cool Ring of Fire novel called 1636, The China Venture by Eric Flint and Ivor P. Cooper. Um, Ivor and Eric, thank you so much for uh, talking uh, with us about 1636, China Venture. Yeah, no, it's our pleasure, and thanks for You're- asking us. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. The miner shrieked as fingers broke. That startled them. Ashok twisted the arm, levering him around, and hurled him into the next miner, sending them both sliding into the fence. The third lumbered toward him, but Ashok blocked that arm and used the miner's momentum to roll him over one hip and toss him to the ground. Stop before I hurt you, Ashok warned as the miners got up and surrounded him. They were red-faced, furious, feeling the blood rush of impending violence, their breath coming out in fast gouts of steam. A knife was drawn. Ashok spun around the thrust, snapped that wrist, and sent the knife flipping high into the air. 
he swept the miner around and flung him headfirst into the fence, breaking boards. The next was caught on the way in, and Ashok's elbow shattered his jaw. The last miner's clumsy attack was intercepted, and Ashok threw him against the trough hard enough to break both it and several bones. A hundred-gallon flood of water and ice chunks spilled out, washing over Ashok's bare feet. The innkeeper took a step forward. Ashok kicked him in the chest and sent him ten steps back. Thump. The knife landed in the snow. Ashok hadn't been this mad since the night he'd confronted Bidea about the truth. He walked through the slush toward the panting, heaving innkeeper. The law doesn't exist to satisfy petty greed. The soles of his feet were sticking to the ice, and each step tore at his skin. It isn't about justifying your stupid desires. What you want is irrelevant. The law is supposed to be more. It's supposed to be greater than any of us. It isn't some club for you to beat your inferiors with. I'm sick of people like you. People like me, the innkeeper squeaked. Those who pervert the law and use it to justify their whims. Ashok reached down, grabbed the innkeeper's ear and pulled. It didn't take much to convince the man that regardless of the newly broken ribs, he'd best stand up. You don't have the right to execute someone without evidence. But they're not people, the innkeeper squealed. Who are you to decide? The law. The law says they aren't people. He was right. Ashok looked down at the girl. She'd been swept away by the water and was lying there, shivering, bruised and bloodied from the beating the workers had administered. The boy was crawling toward her leaving droplets of blood on the white behind him from a leaking cut over his eye. They were weak and frozen and suffering and malnourished and afraid, but they weren't people. How could I forget? The disconcerting thought shook him to his core. He stood there for a time, rattled by his own weakness. He might have even forgotten the innkeeper, if he'd not opened his stupid mouth again. Please don't murder me over some non-people, merchant. I didn't mean no offense to you. But offense was given, and offense was taken. I said I gave a gift. You should have taken me at my word. Ashok let go of his ear. You're unfit to be an overseer. You'll never lay a hand on either of these again, understand? The fat man nodded vigorously. Ashok turned to go, then thought better of it, turned back and punched the innkeeper in the face, smashing his nose flat. The fat man lay down, whimpering and bleeding. Be glad that's all you get. Ashok turned to walk away. The best thing to do would be to fetch Keita and Thera and then get out of town as quickly as possible. He cursed himself for his foolishness. Outlaws couldn't afford the attention. He walked around a moaning worker, but paused when he heard the girls weeping. Once these men talked, the villagers would be outraged, and someone would have to pay. Castless were routinely executed for far less. What did it matter? The innkeeper was right. They weren't really people. He went over and took the girl by the arm. Stand up. She flinched away from him, but Ashok pulled her to her feet anyway. Come on. You too, he snapped at the boy. I'm sorry, she said through shaking blue lips. 
I shouldn't have shared. The master wouldn't have seen. It's my fault. When these get up, they'll be mad, and I won't be able to help you if a mob of workers comes looking for revenge. Do you have a place you can go in the caster's quarter? Is there a barracks that'll take you in? I think so. Blood dripped from her cuts and spattered on Ashok's fine merchant's coat. Maybe. Go there and hide until this calms down. Her legs were visibly trembling. He could feel the vibration of her thin bones in the palm of his hand. I don't think I can walk. As he carried both children away, Ashok looked up at the bright blue sky. Far above, a single hawk circled. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a literal and metaphorical combo carronade mount for salvos of joys and huzzas, thanks and praise for Eric Flint and Ivor P. Cooper, authors of 1636 The China Venture. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars. Thank you.